Sometimes the best way to learn is from a guy who's done it before, or maybe a guy who's done it a couple of times. You know what? If you're going to build and sell a tech business, I think you might want to talk to a guy who's actually done this more than once. And that's exactly what we've got. This is a great episode. I've got Braddock Cunningham here to talk, and uh, we're going to talk about building and selling your tech business. Hey, I'm Phil Yanov, host of the Tech After Five podcast. Let's go. Hey, this is Phil Yanov, and I'm here with my good friend, Scott Pfeiffer. Glad to be here as always, Phil. You know, we, uh, Scott, I had some opportunity some time back to do an interview with one of our uh, local entrepreneurs, somebody that both you and I know, and I thought it turned out to be a pretty good story. You've already listened to this thing. What did you think? I've listened to it several times. I think it's a great interview. It's a great interview with a great guy. Yeah, and, you know, the thing I liked was this is a thing that, uh, and of course, the guy we're talking about, it's not a secret, right? You're going to be listening to him before. It's Braddock Cunningham. But one of the things I liked about this story was this is a guy who has done it again and again, right? It wasn't, this isn't a one-shot story. He keeps at this. Well, that's right. Brad has a great entrepreneur's story. He has founded, grown, and sold multiple businesses in different industries, and he's learned a lot along the way. And what I especially like about his story is the parts about where he is able to learn and pivot his business, uh, solve new problems, and the lessons he learns about how to sell a business or his approaches to sell a business and the way they change over time. Yeah. You know, just thinking about titling this, right? It's sort of lessons of a serial entrepreneur, right? I like that. Yeah. So in what can you learn? Um, so I would think that, you know, anybody who was found or thought of themselves as on the entrepreneur's journey, a neat thing about this story is this is real approachable. This is a guy that we know. Um, this is a guy that's managed to, to build something, you know, in this case, in the, our South Carolina backyard. Well, that's right. You know, I've worked with Brad on and off as a consultant or an advisor for almost 20 years since his eBridge days. Uh, but the cool thing about his story and about this interview is there are lessons in there for very young people who think they want to be entrepreneurs and how Brad went about developing the skills and to, to become that for people who are in the middle and trying to grow a company and his lessons about how to see the market and move with the market and lessons for more seasoned entrepreneurs who maybe want to start another company and do it better or sell the company they have and the steps they need to take. You know, I haven't really thought about it except sitting here talking with you, which is why I like having these conversations, but it strikes me in a way it's like a chess game. There's opening moves, there's sort of a middle game, and then there's how do I close this thing off? And there are lessons in Brad's story that I think anybody could take. I think that's exactly right. And I think having sold, you know, grown and sold several businesses. Brad today is kind of a master of that end game. And he, he talks about that taking his chips off the table, which which you'll hear in the in the podcast. But I think it's a 
it's a great way to look at it. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, here's what I'd like for you to do, Scott. Um, this is a pretty long interview. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time with uh, Brad. In fact, I've trimmed it down greatly, but it's a pretty long interview. But I want you to come back with me here in somewhere in one of these beats in the middle of this thing and talk a little bit about what you've heard and some of your ideas. I want your thinking to be part of this because you weren't there when I did this interview with Brad, but I'd certainly love to have your point of view. Will you hang out with me? I will. Sounds right. great. We'll see you guys. Listen, this is going to be great for you, the audience, whatever you're doing off, driving, riding, treadmill, whatever it is you do. Um, we, we could apologize for the length of the interview, but here's the deal. It's completely and totally worth it. And let's get you started on it right now. We'll be back in the middle. So hold on. We're about to begin our interview with our local serial entrepreneur, Braddock Cunningham. You, you get out of school and then what happens? Um, go to the Marine Corps. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a segue. Yeah. <laughs> but a long time for business. Um, so after I got out of the Marine Corps, then I'll work for Piedmont Natural Gas for about six years. And in that, kind of got into um, technology a little bit, got interested in it. Left Piedmont, actually went and got certified in IBM um, programming and some Oracle stuff. And started a little consulting training firm called um, very original Cunningham IBS. Well, right. <laughs> Standing for Integrated Business Solutions. So I had a real original name. But did that uh, for about three years. And what that thing morphed into is we actually ended up training mostly. Um, had some consulting clients that we had. Um, heck, I had International Paper, uh, First Union Bank, uh, I'll Hold. Because, you know, you'll remember the late 90s, I'll Hold was the big sucking sound of technology here in in Greenville. Yeah, meaning that they were big. I mean, yes, and yeah. they had all kinds of yeah, everybody tech Everybody was there. coming in, so did a lot of work with them. But then I got certified as an IBM instructor, and my wife at the time was also a certified Oracle instructor. So we started doing a lot of teaching in Oracle and IBM technologies. And over the next two years, specifically on the Oracle side, we became the go-to for Oracle training. And all of a sudden, no, no counting of anything I did. Um, a guy calls me out of the blue one day, a guy named Jeff Twomey, never will forget that name, worked for Diversified Computer Consultants, and calls me up and says, I'd like to take you to lunch. And I said, uh, okay, what's it about? I said, I just want to talk to you about your company. And talked to him, and he wanted to buy IBS. Yeah. Um, all he wanted was the, the, at the time, Diversified was the largest Oracle training partner for Oracle in the nation, and they were wanting to come into South Carolina. And apparently they came in and talked to some training schools like New Horizons at the time and stuff. And they told them that, you know, my company was doing it. Right. So basically paid me out to stop training. I couldn't consult for like two years. Gave me enough money to start the next venture. Yeah. So we're gonna, I'm going to come back to that first. But let me, yeah. I'm going to get to that very first transition because that's, to me, always sort of a key moment in the entrepreneurial story or your journey, which is I'm working for another guy and then I decide I'm not going to do that. How, what was that transition for you? You know, you talked about you were working for Piedmont Natural Gas. Right? It was a change of jobs. Yeah. I had a great job. I was a, called a conversion manager. I ran all the pipeline, the gas main extensions in Greenville County. So it, you know, anytime we extended gas mains, we ran it. So I was pretty autonomous with, with that job. I could run crews. I did all the mathematical stuff. I did all the permitting, did everything for it. Then I got promoted. Um, and the promotion was to a marketing job out of Charlotte, uh, the food services rep for South Carolina. And now all of a sudden I had like a, what I would consider a real manager because, you know, they were, as corporate is, the director of marketing constantly had to put reports into them and this and that. And I didn't enjoy the job from the perspective there was no goal to the job. I mean, 
you know these type jobs is you take people to play golf, you take them to lunch, you rub shoulders, but that's it. You're not getting anything done. And that really, I did that for eight months, and that really got me thinking I need to just do my own thing. And at the time, this this cool thing called the internet was getting hot that, that nobody knew what it was. And everybody and their brother was doing web uh, web design at the time. Right. So I didn't know really anything about it other than some stuff I'd done with some uh, VB expert programming to do some um, if-then analysis for some of my projects. So I quit. I actually taught school for two years to uh, at Granville Tech while I was going through my certification program. So it was really that job that really did it. Plus, I always knew I was going to start my own business at some point. But I was pretty happy in the job I had running projects. But now, wait a oof. second there. You just tossed that in. I always knew I was going to go do something. Now, tell me about that. What do you mean by that? Well, just I always felt that, you know, everything was a stepping stone. Like, even you know, my, well, I used to do HVAC work when I uh, first got out of the Marine Corps before I um, went to Piedmont because I actually got college in there, too. And I always knew I was going to do my own thing. I just didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, didn't have resources or anything to really start anything. It didn't have necessarily any skill that I could think of that could stand on its own so it made sense to go to work for somebody else and try to build you know build a life and to build some amount of, of a nest egg and get income coming in so but it was always a means to an end and it, I don't know when it would have happened it would have been later though if it had not been for that job right yeah <laughs> that, thank God for I someone that. making me uncomfortable yeah, right that, that <laughs> that then I had to go right do something then. else I, I'm not built to work for other people right <laughs> so yeah, no, hey, I'm completely sympathetic to that state, right? So you come out, uh, you come out of this. I mean, you, you've done this work. You decide you're going to go do something. I mean, how did you decide? You said you, I think you started with training at that point, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing IT training. I mean, right. I mean, you must have had a customer in mind at the beginning. Yeah, actually, because well, first thing, once I got my certification um, and I got um, certified in, in uh, Lotus uh, Technologies at the time, and also some Java, which was new and hot at the time. And again, because Allhold was taking every tech job in, in three states, right. pretty much around here, it was fairly easy to get a contract gig at Allhold. So as, as a junior developer, so I came in as a junior developer and under contract, and got exposed to all this technology and just absorbed it like a sponge. Meanwhile, I was continuing getting more certifications and all, and eventually went through the um, instructor program. Then, as part of that, I started actually teaching the classes at Allhold, um, as they were wanting to get some of their folks more certified. And so Allhold was the original customer in mind and stuff, but also during that time, I ended up getting uh, a gig with First Union up in Charlotte. And if you remember the banking in the late 90s was the all the consolidation right. and mergers. And at that time, First Union had already bought like four other banks and were looking at buying two others, and they were trying to integrate all this technology one of the things I did at Allhold that I became really good at was integration of different systems and stuff. So I kind of parlayed that into putting, getting myself in the first union also. Right. Um, so that's kind of where it kind of started. So you, you, as I get this, then you decide you're going to go out and do something else. It was easy to get the gig. You, I mean, you did some of the stuff that I think some people just take for granted or don't realize it's a good plan, right? Which is you identified somebody that, had a tech problem they wanted to solve and were willing to pay people to do it. And so you 
get exposed to a guy who's got money and problems, right? right. And go hang out with them for a little bit and, and essentially search for opportunities because they had things that they were trying to solve. And you could yeah, work exactly your way up it. through that, right? And, and I parlayed that. I mean, it, that became the basis for what my next company was dealing with integration because every customer I kind of got drawn to or looked for, however you want to put it, all had those same issues. And so that kind of, kind of became the specialty. So when I would look for pains out there, I would look for ones that were buying other companies or trying to merge disparate systems because maybe they've gotten bought with somebody else or whatever. Uh, those are the type of companies that I looked for. And um, in early days, it was really interesting because, it, like I said, I was under contract. Right. So I don't know if you remember coming to AGSI mm-hmm. going way back. Yeah. Um, I was actually through AGSI. Well, after six months on the contract, I was able to get hold to let me come in independent out of AGSI. And that was kind of really how IBS started because now I had to have a corporate shell. Right. So once I got that, then I was like, oh, well, I can get somebody else. So once I identified First Union, I actually hired somebody to work up at First Union full time under, under my shell. Right. So it kind of did that. And then after about two years at hold, I got to the point where I could be gone you know, 50% of the time. So I started splitting my time between First Union and I'll hold. I'd also got an international paper on as a customer at the same time, which had almost the exact same issue with combining disparate systems. Right. So it was, it was um, looking for those type customers and having them having that problem and then really making myself the expert to fix those. Right. And so you just sounds built. easy now thinking back on it. Well, was it, it at the time? No, no, no right. I mean, because at the time it's like, well, I don't know if that guy. I don't know if he's going to want me to do that thing, right? And I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you don't know, but it's just throw out and keep asking, right? And they show up, and that works, and that works. So it seems like then that selling that first business that came to you. You, oh, absolutely. You, it was. I'm going to guess it was not on your mind to like, oh well, how do I get out of here? Yeah, not even thought about it yet. I had. I had two employees full-time and my wife working. Right. <laughs> so right. there were four of us. I was not thinking at all. I was thinking I was making a good income. Yeah. And we were growing because I was getting other training opportunities. We had those two pretty hardcore consulting gigs um, that ended up having, ultimately had three people in at, at, at First Union, one part-timer. So things, yeah. And then just out of the blue, God right. calls me up. So it's a good, it's a good problem. We're solving the problem, and a guy. So, so, in that first thing, what did you learn right there? What did you learn out of that cell? Because you you end up doing this again. Um, probably got spoiled a little bit though, about how easy that cell was. Right. Um, second, also learned that um, I probably um, sold too easily because um, I didn't realize how much leverage I actually had after the fact, but not upset about it. And the process it taught me a lot about the process, the things that came in. And, you know, I learned so much about, you know, non-competes and learned about, you know, earnouts and things like that that I really had not ever thought through and right. dealt with all those. And I felt at a very big disadvantage um, because, you know, even I, had, I had an MBA, but the stuff you get in your MBA, just it doesn't. It's not the same when you start having the contracts thrown in front of you and what you're signing for and what you got to understand. So I learned a lot of stuff on the fly. So, I mean, so you pull that bit forward. And like you said, I mean, I, I don't sense regret there. It was like I said, you didn't know how to negotiate all of those pieces. That was all relatively new to you. But that was a thing. You'd built a thing that was, in fact, I guess, ready enough to yeah. sell. What I, what I, the main thing that I learned of benefit from moving forward, and this is just those experiences. Right. The reason we were attractive was because we were being really good and we had a large portion of the market. 
And so if somebody was looking at coming and wanted to do Oracle training in South Carolina, we were in the four major train because uh, New Horizons at the time had a Columbia location at, um, where they bought Carlson Computer at Columbia, Charleston, and Greenville, and doing something in Spartanburg. We had every location. Um, and then we were also doing training for corporations, too. So we kind of had the market cornered, and we're doing a really good job, and our quality was high. So that's the reason we were attractive. So I kind of felt, okay, if you continue doing that going forward, you got to at least do that so that you're even attractive right. to somebody. And we were making money, so that's obviously good, too. So guy comes in, buys you out. What, what, is, what do you do next? I mean, you can't go do that again, right, because that was part of your non-compete. Right. The, oh, and you're probably there for some period of time, right? No, I was going immediately. Oh, yeah. um, just did introductions because all they really did, they came in um, – they hired my employees, including my wife at the time, yeah. um, hired all them and had me do introductions and then I was gone. Yeah. Um, so I had nothing to do with it. And then they just absorbed that into diversified computer consultants. So IBS ceased to exist. Where I was, I mean, that's a small, it was a small sale and it was an earn out over, over 18 months. So over that 18 months, it gave me a good income that I had and enough to do more than just live on. I could actually do something with it. But I couldn't do training, um, at least not the way we were doing it then. And I technically couldn't go do consulting in, in those arenas for right. that period, for actually two years. So I said, well, let's develop software. Because some of the customers that I had on the consulting side that the company that purchased me, Diversified, did not care about. They didn't care anything about First Union. They, right. they didn't care really anything about all whole separate maybe doing training. They didn't care anything about international paper. So those consulting jobs that I had... I went back to them and specifically international paper and talked to them about how about if we write you a piece of software to do this integration problem that I know we've been talking about and you know and they acted like they'd be interested in seeing something so I took the next eight months um, for my next company and hired a couple of developers and myself and we built software over the next eight months using the money I was getting out of the sale mm-hmm. without. Zero income. <laughs> All right. So, so at this point, your deal with the new guys with with paper is they're not paying you for this yet. I mean, you're developing right. something essentially on spec. Yes, they wanted to see it. So we we got wow, that's a risk there. That is, we had full access, so we was able to go and get good good systems design. They worked closely with us, but again, we're getting no money. So everything I was getting from the sale was being poured into this company to pay our balance of salary. Yeah. And it's the proverbial. That one was the true, where I felt more like a true entrepreneur because the other one was so organic. I mean, I was consulting and getting paid. And then, I, hey, I was happy to be able to get somebody else in. So I was getting a piece off of their consulting gig. And then right. I'm also doing training. This one, I felt really like a true entrepreneur because, you know, I'm sitting there paying other people's full salaries and, and I'm not taking a salary right. Right. <laughs> and things like that. You know, say so I went through those proverbial, you know, you know, you pay everybody else, but you don't pay yourself or you're eating at McDonald's and, you know, yeah. you know how did you, credit cards. So when you get to that spot, I'm just curious, how did you know what that was going to sell to international paper for? How do you know what, the, what they were willing to pay I for? I had no clue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm, I'm just sort of magnifying the risk, yeah. right? We're, the flashlight no and, the, and the... The way I... And, and, and they probably got one of the best deals in the, in, in the world on, on that software um, that ultimately they did buy. And okay. they ended up putting it in on uh, six locations, um, six plants. as a, a scheduling application, but it allowed them to integrate from the AS400 to some access database stuff they had going on in some places and other places with actually manual scheduling and all these crazy different things that were going on 
one web-based system integrated those. Right. I based the pricing on what it cost me to build it, what it was going to cost me to maintain it going forward, and then I tripled the figure. Right. Probably no. should have hundred times it. Yeah. But to me, that was great money. Right. Plus, the other thing I did, and, and one of the things I did with that company um, is built recurring revenue. So I wasn't as concerned about that lump sum as much as I was getting them on the hook to continue to use us as support and enhancements. So the low price that had on it probably was attractive to them, even though I had the tag on of, of support every month going forward, which they they kept till I sold the company. Yeah. So for six years, they, they paid it. Could you do that again? I think so. I mean, is the market the same? I, I'm kind of, I mean, really, things are different. But Things are different, but I've been amazed, especially in the manufacturing world, some people I've talked to, how archaic some of these systems still are. Yeah. You know, all these years later, that was 15 years ago when I developed that. Um, but I hear some of the exact same problems. You know, people using this system in one plant, and specifically with companies who buy, at that time, International Paper bought Union Camp. Right. Um, paper manufacturer. So... That's what created their issues. Everybody at International Paper all had the same system. When Union Camp was a hodgepodge, even within Union Camp, they didn't have the same systems. Literally, you'd go to one plant, the way they scheduled their machinery would be what's called a planning board, which if you've ever been in old textile mills, you would have seen them up on the wall, and you, you actually literally slide name cards over for orders and stuff like that. <laughs> right. That's what they schedule with. Another plant's using an access database that somebody in-house built. Right. Another one was actually using an ERP system. So it's like, they, well, so if you were up here at International Paper and you wanted to actually see a consolidated view of what's being produced across your plants, it was impossible. You were, you were getting the proverbial you know, reports on paper being sent to you. So I hear some of that same stuff still going on today, which blows me away. Yeah, uh, You now build this thing. What's the name of the company at this E-Bridge point? Ebridge Technologies. Right. And so this is, this is the next thing you build, right? Right. And tell us about that, Ron. Tell me about over, that. Over the next six years, like so we started that in 2000, and um, over the next six years, ended up moving from that scheduling software that we started off with, which, which as a note, I, I'm, I always like to tell people this because it's kind of cool. We were the first small business manufacturing application featured in the IBM Global Solutions Catalog back in 2001 or whatever. So that was kind of cool right. um, that little eBridge Technologies in Greenville had that. Over the next six years, we did a lot of custom apps, and we kind of did a, a, I'm not sure it's not a unique thing, a lot of small companies do this, but we would do a custom app, but then we'd package it up and sell it to the customer, so and sell it as a production app that we could charge licensing for and, and all that, so we did several types of applications, like everything from resource scheduling to um, the manufacturing schedule we were doing to quality management to supply chain. And then in the supply chain arena is what the company completely evolved into over the next six years. Um, Web-based, something that would consolidate all your manufacturing processes if you're outsourcing your manufacturing. And it just kind of organically went in that direction in the apparel industry. Uh, specifically our first customer, and that was Liz Claiborne. Mm-hmm. And, and we built the custom app for them but did it, again, at a price tag that allowed me to get some terms I wanted, which I wanted retention of all the rights to the code that they would continue to pay a support for it, et cetera, et cetera. So we did that. 
once we had that built, tested, and then working, we repackaged it and sold it out as a, as a product called a IPQA, or Supplier Bridge, as the, the main moniker for it. And we sold that to Calvin Klein, Russell Corp, um, Fuji Photofilm, um, you know, a lot of other companies that ended up buying. We ended up ultimately being in 76 countries and 800 manufacturing facilities. So how did you know you were going to be able to do that? part, right? I mean, because you took that risk on the front end, but you must have had some idea of what market size would be. Otherwise, you'd have just looked at Liz Claiborne and said, we'll do this for X, and then I'll go do the next thing for X, right? Kind of like what you talked about earlier with, with seeing the, the problems. You know, I mean, if a company like Liz Claiborne is having this issue, because their issue was they outsourced 100% of their manufacturing around the world, and they had no singular visibility into where their products were at any given time in the process. So uh, anyway, you pull all that information together, you get it, and basically you and then take this from company to company. That's the thing is you exactly. you build the app. And we it branded it. Works. Yeah, we, we you know, were smart enough at least to, to brand it and, uh, you know, with the supplier bridge moniker and it had multiple modules, had a quality module, contractor management module, we even... Schedule Flex, which was the original scheduling application uh, for International Paper, had now flowed its way into Supplier Bridge and was now a component as well. Mm -hmm. So we had a nice little suite of applications, and that's kind of what we went to market with. And 100% of our branding kind of went behind that. So we went from being a custom app manufacturing type company to a supply chain company. Right. And with that, started doing a tremendous amount of work. Um, in all areas of supply chain, specifically around integration and logistics and visibility. Right. So you've got this running, but this comes to an end somewhere along the way. How do you decide that you're going to get out of this? Well, and also there was a merger in there, too. Um, we were selling the, main, the, the scheduling application, for instance. We were selling it across the country. We had ultimately like 13 or 14 different facilities across the U.S. from um, California to, you know, Alabama to here, we needed people to go and implement it. And I only had a staff of like eight folks, um, mm -hmm. which most of which were developers or my web guy, my UI right. guy and all that. There was another company in town that used similar technologies as, as my company did and ended up merging with them because they were nothing but mainly consultants. So when we merged with them, I was able to use their consultants to go and implement our software. And that also gave us a little bit bigger size, um, got us got us a number where I thought we'd start being attractive um, to potentially sell. And with eBridge, I did start putting things in motion to where I wanted to eventually exit that business. After five years, I really, that's where I kind of got antsy. At, at five-year point, I was like, I want to try to move on to the next thing, whatever that next thing is. Yeah. And so the... The merger, bringing on these additional people, that was primarily to get you the implementation team Correct. that get you the needed to do. implementation team and also to, to give us a little bit more size because they, they brought a book of business with them as well. Gotcha. So we about grew by about 50% just upon the merger, uh, which got us kind of in the sweet spot, you know, that two, two and a half million spot, right. um, which, which was perfect. And then we grew from there. That was in 2004, um, 2006. We grew from that point. And in 2006, we were pretty attractive, especially in, in the notoriety that we were building in the supply chain arena was really helping us. Um, and I would go and speak at a lot of conferences, um, whether it be technology conferences or supply chain conferences. 
and really focused on our use of technology to solve some of the, the big logistical and visibility issues in the supply chain. And that notoriety was on purpose, trying to sure. build that and get to know people and everything. So the way eBridge was sold by doing that, I got a call from a guy that I had met a year and a half earlier in Chicago at a show I spoke at, at a supply chain show. And he says, uh, are you interested in selling your business? And I said, well, actually, yes. <laughs> right. I said, I've been thinking about it. I said, that's what I've been working towards. He goes, well, I got a company up here you need to talk to. So again, almost like the first one, I kind of got called out of the blue, but this one I had been prepared for, right. at least. So I kind of generated that one. That you sell this off, what do you do next? At this point, eBridge had been a very stressful business. Um, it was during a very, you know, we had the dot-com bubble bust in, yeah. in the beginning years of, of eBridge. We were playing ball in a really, really big ballpark because, again, we were going up against Oracle apps, you know, um, PeopleSoft, Ariba, Broadvision. We're going up against all these, like, big, huge players almost every time we pitched our software. Right. And it was tough. It was it was. I was learning on the fly, you know, learning how you can do software releases and this and that, just so much stuff and, and pretty much, you know, all all self, not pretty much, all completely 100% self-funded. And so the business itself was helping it grow and it was stressful. You know, everything every entrepreneur goes to, again, you know, the, the times about paychecks, you know, the right. times maxing everything out because, you know, we, we've got to make this deadline. So I need to bring on a couple extra contractors you know, to help us get this revision in, and there's no money necessarily there for that. Right. All that was completely going on during eBridge. So at the end of six years, I was burned out. So the main thing I did after it sold is I didn't do anything <laughs> for about six months. Yeah. Um, I started doing a little supply chain. After about six months, I got contacted by a, a company and started doing some uh, supply chain consulting for them and, and did that off and on. It's very low key. They'd have a project they'd want me to look at. They'd call me up. I'd go to the customer. Mostly I was doing uh, an evaluation of their current supply chain and, and then making recommendations to them. So it's kind of cool to do that. So I did that off and on for about two years. Um, and that was pretty much it. All right, Phil Yanov, I told you that I would be back here with Scott in the middle because I really want some of Scott's thinking on it. Scott, how are we doing so far? Well, I think this has been a great detailed explanation of Brad finding a problem and developing a solution for it. I mean, he's got a company where he's doing training. That gets sold. He can't train anymore. But he's got these relationships with people that he likes to work with and who trust him. And he uses those relationships to identify a problem they have. And then the point at which he said he really felt like an entrepreneur, he takes all the money he earned from that first sale, puts it into specking out a new solution to the problem that he's identified. And he says, you know, I felt like an entrepreneur because I was paying other people, but I wasn't paying myself. Right. You know, and it struck me then when I heard him talk about it the first time, it struck me when I go back and re-listen to it. And as you and I are here talking, the thing about it is um, one of the things Brad didn't do was he didn't rob an empty bank. Right. He started and I pointed out then and I'm pointing out here with you. He started with quality customers, with quality problems, people who had real problems and the resources to solve those problems. He identified that. 
that's exactly right. You and I talk all the time about don't develop a business plan that robs an empty bank. Don't develop, don't solve problems for people who can't pay you to solve their problems. Yeah. So he found problems that he, he wanted to solve and that were in his sort of talent wheelhouse. He hired people to help him draft the software program that was going to solve those problems. And he sold it to people that he already had as customers that were good paying customers. So that's been a great first half of this story, sort of this journey. Now your interview is going to pivot and he's going to start talking about selling businesses and taking those chips off the table. Like we talked about at the beginning, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah. All right. So we'll go back and we'll gather up again at the end. Sounds good. All right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, were, you had it all on the field at that point. I mean, and you just said, this is not sustainable for me. And to speak on Mentally. the field, that's the other thing. You know, 100% of the chips were on the table with Beavers. My entire net worth was, was tied up in that company. Right. Um, so getting access to that at that point in time in my life was, was a good thing because I finally feel like you've achieved something and not just working a job. Um, so that was another motivation behind selling eBridge. Okay. So you take the break and you then gradually, you get into something else. I do. Because there's one, there's another play here. There, there is another play. And I started talking to some, um, you know, capital, um, um, investment folks like, um, the Capital Corp, you know, Dan Adams and his group. Started talking to them, started talking to some other business brokers that I knew uh, in and around town. <clears throat> also, all the way up to Charlotte as well. And when you say you're talking to these guys, I mean, why are you doing that? Just to see what's out there. Um, I didn't, at that time, I was like, I don't really want to start a new business from scratch. Partly because I didn't know what it would be. Right. Um, I knew I didn't want to do what I did at Ebridge again. I didn't, I didn't, I felt where technology was and then we're talking like 2008 now, you know, a couple of years after, after I sold, uh, cause I sold in mid 06. So a year and a half, two years later, I felt like the technology had, had grown so much and the access, I mean, open source was so, you know, there, there were lots of things that were out there that made me think starting another eBridge is going to be really difficult. Yeah. So I didn't really want to do that and I couldn't think of anything else. And then part of me also, you know, I don't want to necessarily have to bootstrap one again. Right. You know, after selling eBridge, I had the ability to do maybe do something else. So I felt I would like to find a business that's already in existence, um, that's already profitable, has some potential for me to, to grow it somewhere. And I would like for it to still be in the technology field. Um, not necessarily software development, you know, not necessarily some high-end technology, but just still technology-based. Right. So I found this company that, that um, was being unofficially marketed for sale. It wasn't listed or anything like that, but uh, the owner uh, uh, had made it aware that he was looking to sell. And the company actually was an electrical contracting business uh, as opposed to a technology business. So for my first thing was I wasn't sure how interested I was in it. Although there's part of me because I'd ran crews before and I, I could see myself dealing with that, but I didn't see the growth potential there. Right. And, but about 25%, if you break it down by revenue, about 25% of business was doing something called structured cabling. Cat5, you know, well, just Cat5 at the time, Cat4, um, and some fiber optic and all that. Then they were doing it for industrial and commercial customers. So, you know, when you'd build a new commercial office building or something, they would do all the wiring in it, both electrical as well as all the cat cabling, the structured cabling. So I'm like, I'm kind of interested in that and what we can maybe do with that. 
So negotiated, ended up uh, purchasing that business um, in 08, and then spent the next three years really turning the business into what my vision of it was. Um, so we actually formed a joint venture with the original founder of that business, and it was, it was Network Controls and Electric. It was right. actually started in 96. The original founder was still around. He had sold it in 2002, but he was still around. And he came to me and told me out of courtesy, he says, um, um, Brad, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be starting a new electrical company. You know, my non-competes ran out. And I said, well, hold that thought. So we actually formed a joint venture. And over the next three years, he ran the electrical division of network controls for me. And we did a profit split as I was growing the other side of the business. Got it. So it allowed me never to take a drop in revenue, to actually grow revenue, but to totally let him be building his own business and just running the numbers through my company. Right. So over three years, worked beautifully. The venture just went great. The, the profit split went perfect. Assets got moved over as it was appropriate. At the end of three years, he had a full-blown company, all good to go and working and profitable. And I had already grown the structured cable inside to be bigger than what we were before. Right. So we had a growth in revenue, um, even over those three years. Not to mention that was 2008, 9, and 10, which traditionally would have been bad time to be doing this. Bad yeah. times. And we doubled the size of the company over the, those three years. Right. Um, one of the things I did, I saw as a vision for network controls was, was not to just be a cabling company. So I changed our moniker from, you know, structured cabling to we were technology infrastructure. And I wanted to do anything technology related with infrastructure. Yeah. So cabling, servers, racks, um, you know, ladder box, what, whatever you needed that was technology-based, short of uh, programming, right? we would do because that would fit into our wheelhouse. And that's what we started doing. We started providing, you know, server racks. We would even resell servers themselves. Uh, we would install all the alarm systems, but we wouldn't program them. We would install fiber optics. We even started doing roadside fiber, uh, which the company had never done before. Mm -hmm. So anything infrastructure related to technology, we started doing. And that's what allowed us to grow. What allowed us to grow through the downturn was the other thing we did is I got veteran-owned certified, and we started going after public work. Gotcha. And we started getting into municipality work, started getting on the military bases, and started doing a tremendous amount of school district work. And those big changes is really what allowed us to grow over those three years. If it hadn't been for that, because if anybody was in the Greenville market or anywhere in the country, really, in 09, especially in 10, those commercial building just disappeared. Stopped, yeah. So when I bought Network Controls, 70% of its business was focused on commercial buildings, you know, like the standard office building. You know, the ones, you know, that you build, it's got four quadrants in it, and they sell them off, and... Those are being built everywhere. And, well, those quit being built. So the other change by going to the public side is we also went for a large industrial, too. And we did not do – we could totally flip-flop those numbers. Between 08 to, say, 11, only probably 30 to 20% of our business was commercial and 70 was industrial. And prior to that, it was the other way around. Right. So you – and then you build this thing and you decide, I mean, somehow you come to an end of this. You're going to get rid of or sell this off as well. You're out of that business today. I am. And how did you make that decision? I mean, what, that, what, that was decided before I bought it. 
Um, I went into it and I looked at what I'd done the previous few times. I kind of looked at the timeline and I pl- and applied myself to that timeline. Where where am I in the process? Three years into a business, right? Four years into a business, and I'm like, you know, my window is about five years yeah. <laughs> before I, I realize whatever it is, whether it's me burnt out or whether it's wanting a different challenge or or my risk tolerance gets too bad that I need what something, right? So I went into network with a five year plan, and that. <clears throat> that joint venture was awesome that it happened. My, my five-year plan included getting out of the electrical business in a way. Right. But the joint venture made it even, even a lot easier uh, to get out of it. So basically, we sold right at five and a half years. Uh, after I bought it, tripled the size of the business, completely changed what the business was. Um, and again, from day one, I was preparing it for sale. Right. So that was, you know, we have this conversation from time to time with folks. But, I mean, you went into this one because you'd done this a couple times before and said, look, in five years, I'm out. So that changed. That had to change what your planning looked like going into it. You, mm-hmm. I mean, because in this, it's like it's not going in. Like, Let's see where this goes. It's I'm headed here. Right. Oh, I had distinctive steps that we had to do. Um, and like most small businesses, um, you know, that are owned by, you know, the either the founder or in this case, this company had been purchased from the founder by a guy who, who used to be a manager in corporate in corporate America, and he wanted to be an entrepreneur. Right? right. No, I don't. I shouldn't say. I don't think he wanted to be an entrepreneur. He wanted to be a business owner. Right. Different. Thing. Different thing. And, but he ran the business still just like a division of a company, you know. So I knew going in there was going to be a lot of stuff I needed to change, and and I, I don't want to use the term fix, but I needed to change the methodology, whether it's our financials, the, the legal stuff we were doing, um, the organizational structure, all those type things. I those It wasn't just, okay, we're going to go in here and start doing more marketing and grow this. We're going to switch from an electrical company to a technology. It was, okay, we also need to do all these internal things to poise the company to be able to be attractive, to be sold. Um, and that's one of the things I learned because I had talked to the gentleman who I bought it from, you know, and he had talked to a couple other folks, individuals, about buying it and really hadn't gotten anywhere with them. And the one company he had talked to, he had talked to a larger electrical contractor uh, here in South Carolina. They're statewide. And they wouldn't touch it. Well, the reason they wouldn't touch it is it wasn't it wasn't prepared to be sold. I mean, right. You, know, you didn't really have the kind of financials you wanted to see. You didn't have a lot of the legal stuff in place you wanted to see. And definitely didn't have the organizational structure in place to build a sell. So I kind of took that when I bought the business. I'm like, okay, um, then I know we got to change all these things to be attractive. And then especially after having gone through the due diligence with the public company, I knew all the things they were looking for. Yeah. And and so from day one, we started doing it. Well, like it took me two years to get the financials to where they needed to be. Um, it took about two, two and a half years to get the legal stuff to where it needed to be. It right. took the full five years to get the organizational structure where it needed to be. Right. Um, so and, and all that time, we're also still growing the business and adding offices right. and, and all that. I know that we, you and I both know plenty of guys from have built nice, good businesses. And for one reason or another, something happens. It was bad planning otherwise. And they may get little to nothing out of it they when it's done. They ride them back down. They, could they spend, ride them up and ride them back down. Yeah, right. Yes, absolutely. Right. And that's part of my five-year thing is, is one of those pieces that is a motivation mine. And I got asked this by a lot of people in network. Why are you selling network? Because we, we basically came off five years of growth. Right. 
And he's like, man, just get I was like, for no other, I said, take all my other reasons off the table. I said, the, the thing I live with every day is operational risk. Great. I said, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, we could have another economic downturn like like we did eight, nine, ten. I said, and I don't really want to weather that again. Right. You know, um, not to mention I have to start over again. Right. Talking about a three-year deal. If we had a downturn, all of a sudden, if we had some down revenues, you're going to have to go another three years. Right. Because people want to see trending. They want to see trending on an upward fashion. And if you've got a down when they, they basically, you know, you could have three up years and a down year. All they're going to look is that down year. Right. So that operational risk is really real every day. And, yeah. and you don't know what the economy is going to do. You don't know what your industry is going to do. Uh, there may be, you know, a lot of people were worried when network controls about wireless because, you know, we did structured cabling predominantly. Right. And like, I would have this as a due diligence question, actually, with people that I talked to looking when I was started the process to sell the business. Well, don't you think wireless is going to put you out of business? You know, so well, I had full answers to all that and talked through it. Right. But it is a reality. Wireless did pose some amount of, of, of potential risk. Right. At the end of the day, it's actually going to help network controls um, when you know the reality behind it. But it, those are the things you've got to think about. And, and if you sit there, a lot of people keep riding, they keep riding that same horse until the horse is tired. Right. And you're supposed to get off the horse when it's still running good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So is there, I mean... I would think that that is a question that you would have for someone else. Is that that's a question they ought to be asking themselves? Is the horse running good? Don't you think this is a great time mm-hmm. to get off? Is there is there any other particular question that you you've like tell an entrepreneur? You know what you've got to ask yourself this, and that's the thing that they need the answer to to kind of move forward. Well, it's a similar question to what you asked me. Why? Yeah, um, is the other biggest thing because when people are talking to me about whether they want to sell their business or whatever, I would ask them why they're wanting to do that. Um, I even asked that to a young entrepreneur who wants to start a business. Why do you want to start it? Because it's two very different things. There are some people that are fine with business, what we call lifestyle businesses. You know, they're basically creating themselves a job. Right. You know, and that's what they really want to do. And that's fine. Um, so you got to ask yourself, are, do you really want to have a job or you really want to be a CEO uh, an entrepreneur of a company, which means you can't be married to it. And even guys talking to me about wanting to exit, I can tell talking to them, they're not really wanting to exit. That's their baby. Right. That's their baby. And they don't, they don't understand how to position themselves separate from it. And so the why thing becomes a big question, both on the beginning and the back end. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's absolutely strong, and you can get all kinds of you can understand much better someone's commitment to actually getting in or getting out, or why that might be. Are they going to stick with it? And if they get out, will they, do they really mean it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brad, thanks so much for this conversation, and uh, I look forward to seeing what you do next. Excellent, looking forward to it. Right. Thanks. All right, Scott Pfeiffer, we're back. What did you think of that? You know, I love this interview, and the second half is where the rubber really meets the road. He's talking about how you sell a business. And I think for most entrepreneurs, that is either at the beginning or eventually a really burning question. Yeah, so, you know, I can be lifestyle or I can be entrepreneur, right? And I I mean, I know this, maybe people would say a lifestyle entrepreneur, but the idea is I might have started a thing so that I could have, I'm basically creating a job for myself, but the entrepreneur actually creates a business that can be sold. I think that's right. And you may start as one and morph into the other over time. But what I find interesting about Brad's story 
is how his approach to selling a business changed with each iteration. Right. So in his first business, the consulting business, he's not even thinking about selling it. Somebody approaches him from out of the blue. He talked about how he'd set up a business that was attractive by cornering the market and doing those sorts of things. But boom, out of the blue and probably left money on the table, he says, because, uh, you know, he wasn't even thinking about it. With the second business, he starts thinking about it kind of halfway through and he starts doing what today we might call content marketing or something like that. But he's giving speeches and trying to develop himself as a thought leader. And boom, that leads to a sale. But when Tommy gets to network controls, his third business, he buys that business knowing he's buying it to sell it with a specific list of action items to make it available for sale at the highest value. Right. And all three of these tech-related, all three sort of tech businesses, but the idea when I get to the end, I get to that third business, it's like, well, I've learned all of this stuff from the past. Here's my question to you about that. Having watched his sort of progression, can I jump to the end? I mean, would it have been possible? I mean, I, he's got a great story there, but you know, if I'm an entrepreneur today, I mean, I, there's nothing at all wrong with that path. Uh, but can I? It can I even as a young entrepreneur begin with the idea I'm going to sell this business? I think that is the most powerful thing about listening to stories like this one, is that you can. You don't have to learn these lessons the hard way. Brad talks about in that first sale how he didn't know what he was doing. He was drinking from a fire hose. He didn't know any of these things. But you can learn these lessons by listening to things like this and by going out and talking with guys like Brad. And you can go straight to the third way. I'm buying the business. I know that I want to sell it. And I have a list of things I need to do to get it ready to sell for the highest value. Right. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I think... Uh, it is good advice for anybody to figure out how they're going to find the door, right? When they begin the thing, how do I end this thing, right? What does the end of this look like? Um, it kind of it gives you a planning horizon that you might not have had otherwise. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Scott, is there anything else I should have been paying attention to or I might have missed in all this? Well, one thing that you and I know that the audience doesn't know is Brad's done it again. Right. Uh, it turns out this interview is something I've done a little a little while ago, and that in the interim, he's actually off onto a new project. He is. Uh, I've been working with him on it a little bit. He's bought another company. So far, it's going great. It'd be fun to have him in to talk about that sometime. Yeah, uh, I think that would be a great idea, too. And we just uh, one more chapter in this whole story. Scott, I tell you what, I really enjoy these conversations. I really like having you here helping us figure out a lot of what's going on, particularly on this entrepreneurial side. Appreciate your help. Um, if someone wants to find you, how do we where, where do we find where we find you? Well, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, where my LinkedIn URL is Scott Pfeiffer. Yep. And uh, I have a website fscottp.com. All right. Super. I'm Phil Yanov. Thank you for listening to the Tech After Five podcast. And uh, now a message from our sponsor. The Tech After Five podcast is part and parcel of the Tech After Five live event itself. At each and every one of our events, we are here to help tech professionals advance their careers and tech entrepreneurs build their businesses. Look, 
you're working out tech day to day, that's what you're doing from nine to five, but tech after five, it's what comes next. How do we help you move the ball forward? So we do it at our live events. We're doing it right here on the show. We hope that if you've not yet signed up for one of our events, you'll go to the website, techafterfive.com and do that and make sure that uh, you don't miss out on any one of our events. We do these in multiple cities and we're gonna add more. In fact, we're gonna look for your help on that. But for right now, go to techafterfive.com and sign up for the next event.